Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Ms. Wanda Skrivonska on the topic Psychology, Snake Oil and the New Age. This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Wanda Skrivonska is a school counsellor and registered psychologist. Tonight I'm going to uh, speak on a subject that perhaps hasn't been linked, you might not have heard linked in certain ways, you might think how is psychology and the new age joined together. Well, most of you would be aware about the rise of neo-paganism in Western society. Um, it's an indication of how far we have moved away from our Judeo-Christian roots. You can see it in the new age shops which have sprung up in the last 20 years offering holistic healing, crystals, various kinds of spirit channeling, invitations to release the inner psychic power, the goddess within, ads on buses and museum exhibitions also celebrate the goddess within and rediscover some of the old uh, mythologies and the um, ancient you know, Egyptian kind of gods. Uh, the witch and demons costumes are very um, common in, uh, for, for children's parties these days. And, uh, of course, children read the Harry Potter stories, as you're well aware of. My local newsagent sells innocuous-looking coffee table books on witchcraft, next to the Women's Weekly. And in a go-low shop recently, where I was buying something for $2, I saw an encyclopedia of spells for sale in the children's toys section. So an indication of how far we've gone. Not long ago, in case you think this is just the secular world, I saw a teacher emerge from a Catholic school dressed as a witch, surrounded by her little students on Halloween who were also dressed in various costumes. It was in Bondi, actually. I saw this on the street. And uh, where this is the social context where paganism has been legalised in Australia. There's even pagan pastors allowed in the military. And... Uh, Census figures show that the conversions to paganism are on the rise and uh, the manifestations of paganism, that is, there are usually three New Age, Wicca and Satanism, um, all share this belief in man's capacity to become divine life through his own efforts. Um, no doubt many people you know that you come across downplay the revival of interest in magic, saying it's pretty harmless, but Father Gabriel Amorth in Rome does not downplay it one bit. He says even that these so-called innocent books, such as the Harry Potter books, just a story about a boy, you know, a bit of magic, says his exact words are, behind Harry Potter lies the signature of the king of darkness, the devil. They are his exact words. And he explains in his book, An Exorcist Tells His Stories, which you might be familiar with, that he has had to do exorcisms on people who have had spells on them and he laments the lack of seriousness with which some things are taken in the Catholic world. Now how did all of this happen and what has it got to do with psychology you say? Here's a psychologist speaking. Well, a very interesting link. It happened almost without anybody noticing in the 20th century in the way that evil is very banal and can by little steps insert itself into lives of people and society. And neo-paganism has in this way infiltrated into almost aspect of our lives. Now, we can talk about its roots in age-old Gnosticism and 19th century theosophy and Madame Blavatsky, but I'm not going to focus on those things tonight. I'm going to look at another avenue. Those are avenues, but this other avenue has been very little spoken about, and it's the avenue through a branch of psychology through which the New Age has started to take root in our society and entranced people and this is what concerns me most in the Catholic world and it shouldn't be doing so. Now, psychology is such a pervasive thing. Um, as an educational psychologist, I've worked in that area. I've worked uh, for over 20 years with children. I, I do counselling of children. I help children with disabilities um, if, if get the appropriate help they need in schools. I've worked in schools for a long time. I'm amazed at how even children know all the terms 
uh, associated with psychology. They'll say things like, one child said to me, my self-esteem is better this week. <laughs> and another young boy told me that he was going to visit his father. His parents are separated for quality bonding time. <laughs> you don't visit anymore. You go for quality bonding time. People speak of others as being psycho or chucking a skits. I mean, that's pretty common. Other students try to diagnose themselves. That's another thing. Everybody thinks they're a psychologist. One girl told me, Miss, I've got ADD, but um, I think I caught it from my mother. But my dad, my mother thinks I caught it from my father. I mean, you know that you use terms like communication, skills, stress <coughs> management, group dynamics, behaviour modification, codependence, stroking the ego, the stages of grief, anger management. It's not only psychobabble, but it's psych speak. It's infiltrated in our language so much, and especially into the language of Catholics, because Catholics like to do courses to help people, so they went to psychology and they've been kidnapped along this highway of psychological, not only psychobabble, but the whole series of ideas that go with it. Why? Well, I believe partly the answer, and I only say partly because there are many roots to this phenomenon, but partly the answer um, emerged about 40, 50 years ago when Vatican II exhorted Catholics to go out into the world. Like it said, well, you know, go out, meet the world and take the gospel to them. It was perhaps unforeseen how much they would do this where psychology is concerned. In fact, looking back over the past century, it's fair to say that in Catholic circles, psychology took over from scripture and became more authoritative even than uh, scriptural references. I have heard in recent weeks a priest say, as the great Carl Jung said, I mean, I think we've all heard that on occasion. Um, and there's the famous example William Kilpatrick gives of a priest who said in, in Boston the purpose of Christ's coming was to say, I'm okay and you're okay. And another said, you have to accept your shadow side, you have to accept your shadow side. And another priest made a high self-esteem and uh, said it was bad psychology to teach children that the Ten Commandments. And others evoke um, echo theology, suggesting perhaps that Noah's flood was caused by inadequate environmental policies and that perhaps Noah failed to sign the Kyoto Protocol. <laughs> but another reason why Catholics have been so bowled over by psychology is that it seems to have a religious appeal. You see, it's looking out for oneself, growing, that idea of spiritual growth, being made whole, being kind to others, loving one's neighbour the avoidance of judgment. As William Kilpatrick says, popular psychology with its deep secular humanist roots bears a surface resemblance to Christianity. It counterfeits important Christian beliefs. However, as he says, it does not deliver on its promises. And in fact, as many can say, it has seduced Catholics into a view of the world radically at odds with Catholicism. Loving one's neighbour was transformed into loving the sinner and say nothing of the sin and avoidance of judgment became tolerance of any belief. Now one of the great black holes in 20th century um, Catholic psychology particularly and is, is the overlooking of the philosophical ideas at the base of the founders. Now I can speak from personal experience. I studied at two different unis doing my psychology degree. I did a um, a basic psychologist's uh, degree that I did a master's and nowhere was any philosophical psychology introduced. That I had to discover for myself, searching outside it. And yet, this is the basis on which all the secular humanist ideas are coming from. And the sad thing is that a lot of secular psychologists with the natural respect that exists in the Catholic world for the expert were employed to deal with all kinds of problems within the church, from homosexuality to pedophilia, <coughs> and to help people in psychological crisis. Expertise in secular psychology was the preeminent qualification sought for, not loyalty to the Catholic faith, allied to such knowledge. There's been a very strong, uncritical cult of the expert in the church, and there was no vetting of that expert so-called export psychologists' beliefs. 
And so you've got lots of psychologists, you have them now in seminaries and you know, in various Catholic teaching institutions and no one would dare question their qualifications. But I'm saying there is a need to. And I think the situation is changing, it is turning. <coughs> my attempt, my uh, talk tonight isn't aimed at blasting all of psychology. Don't get me wrong. Well, the, uh, my aim is not to blast psychology because it's benefited a lot of people. Um, if you look at advances in some of the understanding of neuropsychology and how parts of the brain work, um, advances in understanding schizophrenia, manic depression and so on, of course there has been enormous benefit. Who would deny that, knowing people who suffer from such afflictions? I'm not like Tom Cruise who um, you know, blasted anybody who studied psychology and is against it as all Scientologists are. No, I'm saying there is a benefit but there was a lack of adequate um, questioning of the philosophical foundations. There was no problem where, it, where there was a, an attempt at curing pathological conditions but there was a problem in not questioning the foundations. And that's ironic because the Judeo-Christian tradition of the West is probably responsible for the rise of psychology, ironically enough. Um, in the Catholic Encyclopedia, you get the following statement. Inasmuch as Christianity emphasised the inner life and examination of one's conscience, it created a favourable climate for the development of introspective psychology. So the Catholic Encyclopedia, the 1908 version, itself says that the whole thrust of you know, introspection and examination of conscience helped psychology to rise. But over a process of a, several hundred years, from about 1600 onwards, the philosophical, metaphysical dimension was omitted. And psychology, instead of including the soul as it originally was with Aristotle and with St Thomas Aquinas. Psyche means soul. Psycheology is the study of the soul. Instead of it being the study of the soul, it became the study of the mind only. John Locke, in his influential essay concerning human understanding, emphasised introspection. He sure did, but it was of mental processes. He had no interest in spiritual matters whatsoever and discarded the Judeo-Christian understanding of the soul. And make no mistake, it was the jettisoning of traditional understanding of the human soul, of essences, of formal and final causes, that's the basis of 19th and 20th century psychology. It's the basis of the work of people you may not have heard of, like William Wundt, Fechner, some you may have heard of, Pavlov, Charcot, Janet, and then it was given full form in the work of Freud, Jung and Rogers. Now, psychology didn't lay its philosophical cards on the table and yet the Catholics were turning up by the millions, like lemmings jumping over a cliff enrolling in the courses. Little did they know they were attending courses that were opposed to the values that they had grown up with, the worldview that Catholicism had presented them with. Let's look, for example, that's some of the beliefs of the founding fathers, so-called, of psychology, what Catholics are not told about in their courses. Take Freud. Like many of his educated contemporaries, he adamantly ignored any spiritual dimension in human life. He rejected his Jewish upbringing. He called himself an infidel Jew and he was uninterested in the claims of truth of Judaism or Christianity the prevailing religious traditions, actually, of the Vienna that he lived in. In his book, The Future of an Illusion, he dealt with the motives and wishes and needs of people with religious beliefs, but he never accorded the beliefs any significance. Religious belief was nothing but a projection of need or neurosis. That's what he said. And he based it on the work of a fellow called Feuerbach, who'd written earlier in the 19th century. He'd written a book called The Essence of Christianity. And that influenced, incidentally, a lot of the communist thinkers, you know, Marx and Engels as well. The Feuerbach influenced a lot of thinkers in the 19th century. 
And Freud actually rejected any people who had any particular religious faith. He rejected them. He didn't actually deal with them. He dealt with people who had secular um, backgrounds. And yet, listen to this. In Perth, about six months ago, a lady wrote to the, actually to the Catholic paper. I read this with some amusement. She, um, she was praising Freud and she said that he, you know, we have to uh, be very thankful for his, and this is in quotes now, pioneering work. And he has been fundamentally responsible for the healing and relieving of the suffering of countless people, young and old. Little did she know, he never treated anybody who had any particular religious background. And people don't know this when they go to study at uni. In fact, there's another irony in Freud's life. Not only did he repudiate traditional religion, like um, on the conscious everyday level, but he actually then, on the other hand, took up with pagan gods. In his office, visiting people were struck by the fact that there were statues all over his uh, Vienna office. Keep in mind, he was living at the time where all these archaeological discoveries were going on in Egypt and Greece and Rome. And uh, He lived uh, at the time when uh, Schliemann uncovered, um, or he, he was living in the aftermath of Schliemann's uncovering of Troy in 1802, Arthur Evans excavating Minos in 1900, and Howard Carter finding Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922. While Freud was talking about the subconscious, he thought the treasures it would reveal, like archaeology, would be pagan and primal things. This was what was desired. You had to dig deeper than Judaism and Christianity and go back to the source, the pagan um, instincts. And see, that's the way he thought. But this is not what I was told at uni. There are many aspects of Freud's thought that must give a Catholic cause. He had a deterministic view of human behaviour. And that's at odds with the Catholic belief in free will. His dream interpretation. Now, Freud was right in pointing out that we have a subconscious. It's true. Some, you know, this whole thing about you say <coughs> things that you don't mean to say, but it, it, it tells you something about yourself, or the dreams are another language. All of that is true. But even his friend Eric Fromm, who was his contemporary and admired him intensely, and this is his friend speaking, said he got it wrong in the interpretation of dreams. Why? Because if you don't have a religious dimension to understanding dreams, how do you know what they mean? For example, you dream of water. So if it's Freud, he'll just say, oh, well, it's, you know, Warragamba Dam. But if it's a Christian, I'll say it's baptism or it's some renewal or some life. There's a different dimension entirely of interpretation. And Eric Fromm, his friend, in the book called The Greatness and Limitations of Freud's Thought, goes into some detail um, critiquing Freud on the inadequacy of his interpretation. Another thing, Freud tried to kind of press this model of family life based on the Oedipus myth, where um, you know he says that, uh, you know, man wants to kill his father and loves his mother and so on. There is no basis for him making that the normal pattern of family life. He imposed that myth and then tried to kind of stress that that is the pattern of all family life. But there's a basic and outrageous contradiction at the basis of this because in the ancient world his no the incest was regarded as abhorrent. So in the ancient world, the Oedipus myth, which is a story about a man who unknowingly kills his father and marries his mother, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was an abhorrent tale and Freud tried to lift it and make it the normal pattern of all family life. It just doesn't work. And yet, millions have studied this as if it were some kind of new gospel truth. Now, having said all that, I'm very pleased that a Catholic psychologist called Paul Hitz, he's the American <coughs> Catholic professor of psychology at New York State University, and he's the author of a book called Psychology as Religion. Here, if you ever have a chance, some of you may have read it already, but if you haven't read it, it's a really good book. He's a Catholic 
and he's superb um, in analysing uh, some of the faulty ideas in psychology and he has got a very insightful good critique of the secular humanist roots of uh, Freud's thinking and he actually does something good. He turns the tables on Freud and says, okay, I'm going to psychoanalyse you, Sigmund Freud. And what he does is he says, why did Freud use terms like Pentecost, baptism? Why did he love Rome, which he did? He couldn't wait to visit Rome and he used every excuse he ever could. Wrote copious letters back to his wife. He was happily married all his life and he had about six children. He wrote these wonderful letters and he'd say at the top, mind you, this is an infidel Jew, um, Pentecost Eve and then, you know, my darling wife and then he'd write all these uh, letters to her. But why did he use these terms? Well, um, Paul Witz said it indicated an unconscious desire to become a wizard, <laughs> which I don't think Freudians would like at all. But I mean, there's good grounds for believing it because his writing is replete with this kind of subterranean uh, terminology which meant it was real in his life. And uh, that book, actually, that I have uh, just summarised in three lines, Sigmund Freud's Christian Unconscious by Paul Witz, is a very interesting one. It um, gives his background and uh, was actually minded by a Christian nanny, a Catholic nanny in Vienna for a while and uh, the influence that that had on him. He used to actually come back and repeat sermons he'd heard in the Catholic church that his nanny took him to, which horrified his uh, parents. And, um, and then they, I think, dismissed the nanny after a while. But there was some influence in his life coming from there. Now, there are a few comments about Freud, let's take another huge figure in the 20th century, Carl Jung. Richard Knoll, an American uh, writer and psychologist, has said the following in an interview in The Wanderer. Second only to Julian the Apostate, Jung is probably the most successful pagan prophet in the past 2,000 years. He was a polytheist and he said what made modern man diseased was essentially Judeo-Christianity. Richard Knoll says Jung had the most dangerous influence, even perhaps more than Freud, because in a sense the others were overtly anti-Christian, the psychologists, because Freud had a whole swathe of people around him who followed him, um, Adler and Melanie Klein and all these people. But Jung took over the language of religion and deliberately absorbed it into his system of thought. He started out, he was born in Switzerland, he started out there, he worked as a doctor in this Burgersley Institute. It was a hospital for psychiatrically ill people. And uh, he worked under this great doctor, Eugene Bloiler, um, who was a researcher who actually helped a lot of people with schizophrenia. But he became fascinated with ancient cults and beliefs. And he turned away from his medical studies and he went into this area. And then he started to kind of his poor, unsuspecting psychiatric patients with all these ideas of his. He said um, that religion does serve a purpose in people's lives, not as a neurosis, as Freud thought, but as a personal myth or story that means something to you. And he says it integrated the conscious and unconscious selves, the shadow and the persona. This is the language that he used. To many, the concept of seeking wholeness seems so Catholic, even though it sounded very confused because you didn't know quite if shadow side meant sin or it meant some kind of uh, repression that the person had. He used words such as soul, redemption, resurrection, even Christ, but he forced them into an esoteric view, abandoning traditional meaning. Resurrection wasn't the resurrection of Christ, but growth, devoid of Judeo-Christian beliefs. How can Catholics adopt Jung's thoughts when he based a lot of what he did on Gnosticism, which is, you know, claiming to have secret knowledge that's above anybody else. You know, and how, in one of his books, he says, uh, in Memory, Dreams and Reflections, one of his most famous books, he said, grounded in the natural philosophy of the Middle Ages, alchemy formed the bridge on the one hand into the past to Gnosticism and on the other into the future to the modern psychology of the unconscious. Jung thought highly of Gnostics, he thought highly of the alchemist Paracelsus, 
so great was his respect for alchemy you know and he, he kind of went into all the alchemists like lapis and stones and all this sort of thing and he was very much into this secret knowledge now there are many critiques well not many but like quite a number of them coming out now in the last 20 years one of them you may I'm sure you've heard of is by Father Mitch Pacwa who wrote a book on the uh, the New Age and he has a whole section on Jung because he was subjected to it as a Jesuit he went through the whole lot he learned a lot about Jung um, also there is a very interesting book by Richard Knoll called The Jung Cult which debunks um, a lot of the beliefs at the basis of it it's one of the best books I've ever read on, uh, on Jung and uh, how can a Catholic delve into Jung knowing that Jung emptied Christian words of their commonly accepted meanings, relied on spiritualism, astrology, I Ching, and he was disturbed and obsessed by occult experiences in life, doing his PhD on the occult experiences of his cousin, in believing that he was also in, in, in touch with spirits of the dead, which he did at times. For Jung, a spirit could be any spirit, Vishnu, Buddha, Wotan and Christ, he put them all together. He had the idea we all belong to a wider mind, the collective unconscious, which was open to contact with uh, you know, divine realities. And that's really monism. When you're looking at it, everything is one, you know, one God. He delved into the paranormal experiences so greatly that it, in his book, Memories, Dreams and Reflections, he referred to a spirit guide, Philemon, saying, these are his words, Philemon represented a force that was not myself. It was he who taught me psychic objectivity, the reality of the psyche. He was a mysterious figure to me. I went walking up and down the garden with him and he was what Indians call a guru. Now Jung had great problems trying to understand in what way to describe the realities of these spirit forces in his life. Now to give a perspective on you, I'm not talking about some weird little bunch of psychologists in some room at the back of the uni. I'm talking about psychoterrorism. Richard Knoll in The Wanderer said that in the 1990s, in any US spirituality or retreat program sponsored by a Catholic diocese, he said there was an 85% chance that the leader would be a certified union therapist or a priest or nun teaching Jungian therapies. A lot of the Catholic use of the terms wholeness, shadow side or inner growth come from Jung's promotion of them. And while you'll find many books on Jungian Catholic libraries, and you will, you do not find Father Mitch Packrath's critique of Jung in them alongside. Maybe it's a project we should start, you know, each buy a copy and donate it to some Catholic library. Look at the recent offerings on the internet as regards Jung. A conference a couple of years ago on Jungian psychology, it's held every year actually, was held in Einside in, Queens, in, in Switzerland and it's called Longing for Wholeness in a Fragmented World, Connecting to the Unlived Life of the Soul. One of the participants, Sister Kay Wagner, who's described as a Franciscan sister from Rochester, Minnesota, who has received extensive training in Jungian thought and principle making use of the disciple, of the discipline rather, Jung developed as a therapy method to assist people in finding their spiritual and psychic healing. And this year she gave another talk and she added labyrinthine rituals to her subject. And in case you think it's just the women into Jung, it's not. There's a Benedictine monk of 30 years, um, Mark Patrick Hederman, who also uh, was a speaker at this Jungian conference. Now, I'm not out to blast everybody who went into it. I'm trying to understand what happened and why people went into it. One of the reasons, perhaps, that Catholics were so taken by Jung is that they sought answers after the nihilism, destruction and loss of faith and the fragmentation after the world wars. George Weigel actually has a very interesting theory. He says that the world really never recovered from World War I. He said, forget World War II. He said, it's World War I that signalled the end of um, that kind of coherence of ideas. And perhaps people were looking for some explanation that they couldn't find in the terminology of perhaps the religion of the time. I'm not saying that 
the Catholic faith didn't have the answers, but they couldn't kind of understand the terms in which it was presented. I mean, people were influenced so deeply. Prince Charles was very much under the sway of a Jungian psychologist, Lawrence van der Post, and counts him as a basic influence in his life. So, and the influence still continues. Perhaps it's not as great as it was maybe about ten years ago, but there is a now beginning a critique of Jung from the Catholic world, though it's up against a great mainstream opposition. Now, if you think Freud and Jung were bad, what about Rogerian psychology and uh, the whole secular humanist psychological movement? Much of the self-esteem, self-actualisation, self-acceptance mentality was popularised by Carl Rogers. Schools, <coughs> universities, seminaries, religious houses were swamped by it. Rogers didn't use religious terminology, but really, by that stage, he didn't really need to because what he was presenting was an ideological kind of religious view of the world. And Can you tell us who Carl Rogers was? Yes, Carl Rogers was a, an American um, who uh, started to study <coughs> theology in the early 1920s and then he switched to this growing discipline of, uh, this growing exciting discipline of psychology and he completed a doctorate at Columbia University and then he went to teach at Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin and he started to uh, deal with people and, uh, in a very kind of positive way initially, you see, because with Freud he found that things were just too negative. People were kind of thought, they thought that we'll never escape the um, negativity of the background of uh, our childhood influences. Whereas what Rogers was saying, you can develop, you can actualise yourself, you can uh, become a much uh, better person. But these ideas at the basis of his book on becoming a person, which talked about you can you know, self-actualise and um, you know, become this marvellous person, were based on three faulty assumptions. And the first is the complete um, innate goodness of human nature. Now, that runs contrary to Catholic ideas. And yet, in the 1960s, I can assure you, more Catholics were studying Rogerian humanistic psychology that believed in self-development, self-actualisation, self-esteem, than would have known about the other person who was writing on the human person. Could you guess who was writing at the same time as Carl Rogers on the human person? Carol Wojtyla. Who was writing at the same time, and yet nobody knew what he was saying of the human person. But Catholics flocked by the millions to do their Rogerian psychology. Interesting, ironic contrast. It's easier to swallow. Hmm? It's easier to swallow. Easier to swallow. Well, also, it just wasn't known in the Western world, um, you know, in that way. And the thing is that what Carl Rogers said, that we're all so innately good and all we need to do is, you know, let this kind of all these you know, simple instincts, you know, the child within flourish. It went against what actually simple like people living in more primitive societies said about themselves. You know, he had this idea like noble savages live the best life. They're, they're just simple, untrammeled by social kind of restrictions. And he said that all this, but anthropologists said that, listen, noble savages don't think that way. They actually believe human beings are flawed and need some kind of a ritual to overcome their initial flaws and to rise to a higher life, baptism-like ceremonies. So, um, you know, Carl Rogers and um, basing his ideas on Rousseau got it very wrong. Secondly, that first idea that human, you know, that we're all just wonderful people and society restricts us. Secondly, the idea that he got wrong was the notion of non-judgmentalism because it ignores the reality of objective truth and it can excuse sinful behaviour. So he could say to a person who says, I want to leave my wife because I want to discover myself and develop myself, and he would say, okay, if you feel that way, you know, you do it. There was no judgmentalism, no values, no anchor. Now, there is a place for non-judgmentalism in listening to people in distress. I'm not talking about that. You know, there's nothing worse when you're telling 
somebody of your sorrows when they say, oh, I know, I'll do this, or they give you a lecture. They're not talking about that. There is something to learn in learning listening skills and being more judgmental in that way. But what I'm talking about is completely um, abandoning any moral anchors when you're talking to somebody who's talking to you about morally objectionable activities. You have to have some kind of moral anchor. There is no such thing as non-judgmentalism. It's a form of judgmentalism in itself. Non-judgmentalism is saying, you, you know, your whim and your will is what you can you know, choose to do. And that's not correct according to Catholic thinking. The third thing that humanistic psychology got wrong is it had little to say about the world of suffering. See, because it said you have the potential to be anything you like. You just have to choose to do it. You just want it. That's the basis of a lot of this motivational um, stuff at the moment that people pay $1,000 to go and hear. But it doesn't answer the question, what do you do about unavoidable suffering in life? The crosses that are part of our lives that we don't want to carry, that we cannot avoid. And in the Christian world, we know that we are asked to carry them. I remember reading a book by Bruno Bettelheim, and he said, he was an Austrian psychiatrist who ended up in Dachau concentration camp. And when he got there, he'd studied all the Freudian psychology and he said, actually, when I got there, I realised it said nothing about the level of profound evil in which I was living. It had nothing to say about the existence of evil and suffering that had been inflicted by these people on, on the innocent. And underlying that whole humanistic Rogerian world is the lack of any spiritual world or spiritual existence. Religion had no significance to Rogers and his group. He wrote, it was rather infantile, you know, it's something you had to kind of grow out of. And that's the attitude, of course, now in a lot of secular uh, humanistic departments in university. And a lot of Catholics went into um, that, and believe me, Rogers' books are still considered a bit of a Bible as regards counselling techniques. Now, what happened with Rogers is that people got into this kind of consumerist mode. It was the perfect consumerist psychological kind of thing. You'd do anything to kind of make yourself grow, to make yourself, you know, feel better, to make yourself like, you know, reach some higher state, self-actualise. But what happened was all this self-actualisation coincided with a great phenomenon in society which was the rise of depression. The World Health Organization has said that it isn't going to be cancer or heart disease which are going to be the greatest diseases by 2020. It actually says depression will be the number one diagnosable world disease. That's what the World Health Organization the United Nations has said. Now, how can that be and the rise was mainly tabulated in the Western world. Now, how is it that in an era of um, great affluence and the, um, you know, the influence of all this positivist psychology, that you got all this rise of depression? Now, it could be um, for many reasons. I'm not going to give a simplistic cause and effect, but I'm saying partly, I believe, the reason was that people, through um, self esteem and self-actualisation psychology got the idea that, well, really, you can get anything in life that you, you want. I mean, all you have to do is just, you know, go for it and try and get it. And children were taught this. They were taught, you go to the wonderful self-esteem, you know, pick up your pen, you get a stamp just for picking up your pen today. This happened in classes. I've seen kindergartens where children say, I'm special because of this and I'm wonderful because of, you know, something else. And they all chant why they're fantastic. And then... Something happens to them in their teenage years, perhaps, and they think life shouldn't be like this because I've been told I'm fantastic. And what happens? Instant depression because life isn't meant to be like that. And what happened in the psychological world is that people realised that the self-esteem movement, a few brave people started to question it, like Martin Seligman, a psychologist in America, and he started to say, hey, we're not giving children resilience. 
to deal with suffering, to deal with the normal sufferings of life. We've got it wrong. So an alternate movement has started in psychology now, which is called resilient studies. And that's kind of like counteracting the self-esteem movement. Mind you, in the Catholic schools, they're still onto you know, self-esteem a lot of the time. They haven't, but um, increasingly they're getting onto this uh, resilient study. And what has happened in that rise of depression, the rise of, we could say, spiritual emptiness because people thought they themselves were the source of anything that they could do, in the abandonment of Judeo-Christianity, reminding you of that biblical passage of sweeping the house clean, what comes into the place? Evil. Evil and other spirits, and that is what has happened, and that has been the journey through psychology, through this emphasis on self and abandonment of the Judeo-Christian roots into that, has come a new field of psychology called transpersonal psychology. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? It's not, believe me. It deals with Eastern spiritualities and any, it, it purports to deal with spirituality. It's saying, oh, people are looking for something spiritual. But of course, it excludes any Judeo-Christian thinking. It is a kind of a, a psychological version of New Age thinking. And what has happened um, is this notion that you can uh, attain spiritual peace and spiritual um, advancement by looking into yourself and searching for um, divine peace there. And so for a lot of people, initially that idea sounds very comforting, you know, some kind of meditation, peace, um, going into these thoughts, but there's no notion of the Christian ideas. Now, a lot of our young people are trying to blend Christianity and New Age ideas. But make no mistake, they come from another source. Not only is there no notion of man as sinful and requiring redemption, of the Creator God as distinct from his creatures, there's also no distinction between things. You might say that's very basic. It is basic, but you will find that there's some kind of eerie amnesia going on about the very rational basis of our philosophical thinking. Um, you, you'll say to people, look, you have to draw a distinction between this and that. And uh, what you'll find New Age is saying, don't worry about it, it's all one. You'll show a contradiction between two different ideas. I said, don't worry about the contradiction, yeah, yeah, it all fits together. That's the kind of, you know, think it's an attack on thought itself. And no wonder Pope Benedict talked about rationality. I mean, I know he was speaking in the context of Islam when he made his speech in Ravensburg, but he could well have been talking about um, the New Age assaults on our rational um, way of thinking, you know, that, which is really great at the moment. Now, the dangerous alliance of psychology and the New Age arising from this welding of humanistic psychology and New Age spirituality is the only port of call for a lot of de-Christianised young people because they're genuinely seeking something and they often will only see it in the shop that's giving them, you know, crystals and astral travel and so on. Joe Sabamonde, he was an advisor to the Argentinian Bishops' Conference said the following words. He said, the New Age is the greatest challenge for the present century. Interesting. A lot of people would put it other things as greater challenges, but he thinks the New Age is going to be a great assault on the church. He said, the concepts subtly impregnate even those who practice classical and traditional religions, including the Catholic faith. <coughs> Perhaps that passage in Revelation that says all the nations were deceived by sorcery is prophetic. When Pope John Paul II issued a perceptive study of New Age dangers and entitled it Jesus Christ, the Water Bearer of Life, which I recommend to all of you. If you haven't got it, you get it at St Paul's Bookshop in the city. It is excellent. He could well have been talking about people like the St Agnes Spiritual Life Centre in San Francisco, which is advertising 
Zen Buddhism and the Ignatian examiner of conscience. Or St. Thomas More Parish in Benighton Beach in uh, Florida, which has Kripali Yoga at 6pm every Thursday night. Also, Franciscan Sisters of the Holy of the Sacred Heart in downtown Chicago offer therapeutic massage, Reiki, reflexology, holistic facials and Zen Shiatsu, which taps into energy points around the body and it also has labyrinth uh, sessions. Can you explain the labyrinth sessions? Like the labyrinth is that like... The, the idea of the labyrinth is that you're meant to kind of go around in these circles and you kind of come to the centre of your, like you'll come to some kind of new discovery about yourself. And so, I mean, it's very tragic to see all these people. (laughs) (laughs) And they truly do that and they've all got got a dreamy look in their eye. They're not saying rosary, they're just kind of like dreamy look in their eye, looking at the labyrinth and then they kind of go into the centre. They have these moments of silence and reflection and they walk out again. And I believe it's very spiritual. You will be surprised how many places have these labyrinths. I mean, I'm talking about Catholic places. And I'm, I'm partly talking to you tonight because I'm trying to enlist a bit of support in dispelling the myths out there in the wider world. But isn't about what this. mystical monks do anyway? Just walk around in rows of circles? Isn't it just being copied? Um, but they're praying, but what I'm saying... Aren't they just imitating something? Yes, I don't know the exact source of the labyrinth, but it's actually based on some ancient myth. It's not like it's it's actually based on some kind of uh, I think I don't know if it's Greek or um, okay. yeah, it's not a, a Christian symbol. Okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with walking around in circles saying the rosary. Nothing wrong at all. I mean, you know, we all do it. You know, but uh, this is something um, on a different level. Um, the yoga centre of Chicago has a sister, Paulette Schroeder, who's been a nun for 43 years and has been doing yoga for much of that time and teaching others. Let's take the case of yoga. One lady in America called Mary rang a journalist in Fort Myers, Florida and she said, you know, in my parish they've been offering yoga classes, not in the parish hall, not in the courtyard, but in the very chapel itself. And they all sat on the main altar in Fort Myers, Florida. This is where it was going on. And Mary, this girl who rang the journalist, said that she and a few friends arrived because they were horrified. And they sprinkled holy water where the class was to take place. They got there early. And they also handed out leaflets to try to kind of, in a friendly way, tell the 25 women coming to the class a reasoned explanation of why yoga was incompatible with Christianity. When the yoga teacher arrived, she went straight up to Mary and asked her to leave church property. And Mary expressed the same wish to the yoga teacher. <laughs> the class then proceeded and the participants did their poses in the light trance that often accompanies yoga. Mary took two or three photos and a few people then hurled some insults at her. This is all in the last two months. This occurred. The yoga teacher rang the police after the class. Um, but the local stand-in parish administrator press smoothed things over and sent the police away. Then Mary learned that the pastor himself did some yoga and was an enthusiast. Mary then summoned up courage to take some more photos at another <coughs> class and uh, distributed the yoga literature to her local bishop, a Bishop Frank Duane, and the story ends happily. The bishop intervened, the classes discontinued at his request, and they were finished. Catherine, the writer of the article, gave out articles by a certain priest called Father Man Jackal from India, which you may have heard of. Father Man Jackal is an Indian priest who says this, and he understands his Hindu friends very, very well. He says, Yoga is not an elaborate system of physical exercises. It is a spiritual discipline purporting to lead the soul to samadhi, the state in which the the unnatural and the divine become one. And the union that is sought is the union with the god Brahman. He explains that Westerners are hoodwinked into believing that postures are all that there is to yoga. This isn't the case. The postures are steps three of an eight-step process 
to reach this union with Brahman. While Western people insist yoga is harmless, its practitioners similarly insist that the physical and the philosophical side cannot be separated. In an article entitled Innocent Yoga, a doctor from America, Dr John Ackenberg, says, Regardless of the school or spiritual tradition, yoga practice tends to alter a person's consciousness in an occult direction. Even when yoga is practiced innocently, it can eventually produce occult transformation. And in many cases of people doing kundalini yoga, I don't know if you've heard of kundalini yoga, it's a form of yoga that believes you have a serpent coiled at the base of your spine and after doing the positions for a while, you are meant to uncoil the serpent at the base and you're meant to go into this kind of a frenzy. And I don't know if you've ever seen videos of these people in a frenzy, but how anybody can say that that is innocent, I think it's And what's supposed to achieve when you go through this frenzy? You're, you're meant to kind of have risen above yourself um, and, and, you know, got union with... Uh, you're basically inviting through the positions. You might say, look, it's innocent. I'm just sitting there doing this or stretching my legs or, you know, doing this. But why do positions that are inviting in Hindu thinking, why are you doing the positions that invite that alien spirit to enter you? I'm not saying that everybody who's done a bit of yoga has become possessed. I'm not saying, I'm just saying there is a danger that in doing the actions, it's opening some doors that you don't want to open. What about Pilates? I think Pilates, as far as I know, isn't based on any occult <coughs> tradition. It's just exercise. I mean, people say, look, I'm just doing yoga to stretch. I've had people say this to me. I'm just doing it to stretch. I say, well, just do stretch exercises. Why do yoga? If you want to stretch, just stretch. Yeah, Pilates or some other you know, normal stretch exercises are fine. Another very popular thing is reflexology. The reason I'm mentioning these is I've had to counsel people who are involved with all of this, in Reiki, in, in reflexology and so on. Reflexology is like zone therapy, compression massage, which a technique involves massaging the feet at specific points to bring relaxation or relief of pain in another part of the body. So, for example, you massage the big toe, it's meant to ease head pains and thyroid and neck problems. However, Reflexology is not just limited to the feet, the hands and other parts of the body are meant to contain zones. It has a 5,000 year history in the Orient. Dr William Fitzgerald revived this ancient practice in recent times and presented it to the medical profession in 1913. He called it zone therapy and it's a five element theory based on uh, wood, fire, water, earth and metal and the idea of two energy forces pervading your body called yin and yang. What are yin and yang? They're considered to be opposites. Yin is the night, dark, feminine left side of the body, eternity, etc. And yang is the opposite and represents day, light, the masculine right side of the body. The theory may be confusing to most people. and In fact, many people who are practicing reflexology and profess to be Christians are likely unaware of what's behind its respectable front. But... Um, it is a new age practice and it is based on an oriental uh, alien way of thinking. So Reiki is another one which I, I mean there are many that I could go into here. Is Tai Chi also? Yeah, Tai Chi. Tai Chi I'm just really not as familiar with because from what I gather it really is just this form of exercise. As far as I know there's no prayer or philosophy associated with it. Negative and, positive negative and positive energies, that yin-yang idea. You see, this is it. I mean, where I live, in the park, um, there are a lot of people who go there for their Tai Chi every morning. You see it kind of... Uh, and, you know, OK, people come from that culture, but I'm saying we have to kind of, at least in a reasonable way, present a case for Catholics, not, or, you know, Christ, any Christians that we know not being involved in this because we don't need to. There are alternative things that can give the benefit that these things purport to give. And you can see this kind of soft self of the occult going on. It's kind of the Harry Potter of the health world. You know, everybody thinks oh, it's harmless, you know, and so on. Another way in which New Age influences are bedazzling the minds of Christians is, you know, echo theology and ecology. 
the Anglican Bishop of Canberra and Goulburn said, if Christians believe in Jesus, they must recognise that concern for climate change is not an optional extra, but a core matter of faith. I mean, you see these statements in the paper. What about the mixture of ecology and new age spirituality shown by the Green Dominicans, of whom the Catholic Newcastle newspaper Aurora said, and I quote, the parish of Wars and Shortland has recently been blessed by the arrival of two Dominican sisters. Sisters, I won't give their names, but they've moved a long way from their Sydney convent to live in the suburban area of Maryland. Although they've only been in their home named Gaia for six weeks, two Dominican nuns, rapid changes have already taken place. The two sisters are continuing a sustainable living project that they had previously started in the house in Lidcombe. Now there's nothing wrong with trees, but it's different from being soft on Gaia. And a particular concern among eco-Christians and the eco-frenzy that's going on, even within the church and the Catholic school system, is the promotion of the Earth Charter. Now if there's one thing you should be aware of is this Earth Charter. What is it? It was a document produced in the 1990s by two people in the United Nations, um, Mikhail Gorbachev was one of them and uh, Maurice Strong the other. It was a charter that stated that it wishes to supplant the Ten Commandments and be a global ethic. It, is, it presents concern for the environment as the velvet glove but the iron fist is population control and access to abortion. It has it very clear. It uses the words reproductive rights and um, reproductive rights and what is um, access, you know, to population control. Would you believe that this is being supported by several Catholic schools who just see the greenie outside of it, but they don't see what it's really supporting? And that's why I say we are all, I think called to be missionaries in our own way, in our own parishes. I've got leaflets here that I'll be handing out at the end of class. You might like to hand them around or do copies um, to let people know what's going on. But it's interesting because it's parallel to what's going on in Parliament at the moment, isn't it? It is. The you know, there's a greater concern for climate change and so on. You may not be aware of the fact that outside Sydney and Camden there's a place called Catholic Earth Care Australia and in a recent brochure I read from that place, it said, a quote from Exodus 3.3, the quote, take your shoes off, you are standing on holy ground. What did it refer to? The earth. And that's what happens in a lot of the echo theology. It downplays the divinity and it just reduces everything. It's a reductive manner of thinking. It reduces everything to the earth. There are There is a 14 station cosmic walk at Catholic Earth Care Australia, I kid you not. I'm just saying this to you, not to alarm you, but just to get you aware of the fact that these new age ways of thinking are infiltrating the church and we need to be on our guard and warn the innocent from you know, going into these things. And uh, that's why I've come along with some material. 14 stations is apparently on 14 stations. There are many such cosmic walks yes. in Catholic centres around the world. If you even look on the internet and you type in cosmic walk into Google, you will see that they're all over the place. Do they tell you what the, what the stations are, are represented? That they do. If you, if you punch in, mm. I mean, you'll be horrified when you read it. Um, you know, because it's a very kind of godless explanation of how the universe comes. Do you have examples of stations? Oh, that, um, you know, suddenly animals appeared on the earth and... Uh, you know, then the appearance of man is kind of like almost like a negative event. You know, like the trees and, the, and everybody look at them, man appeared. Oh, I'm not sure the monkeys you mean. No, no, they don't actually deliberately state that. But like, you know, to say that suddenly man appeared on the earth, um, I can email you um, some of the details of them. You know, you, you won't be edified. So this is what we're up against. I mean, I think you, you, you know, it's better to be forewarned and forearmed. And. Uh, I think that you have to also be aware of the fact that Christian meditation is being peddled in the schools and often the meditation is taken from an Eastern tradition. You have to be aware of the fact that 
that kind of meditation is not Christian meditation. The meditation that gets you to go within and says that by a technique you can locate God is not what is understood by Christian meditation and contemplation, which says God is other, and you can by no technique just call him uh, into your life like that. You await the graces that come through meditation and prayer. You don't know when they will come, but you wait in faith and trust. And that's different from this idea that if you do certain techniques, you will be in an awesome state of consciousness and locating this divine force within. So that's so, the best that's right. It's a kind of an altered state of consciousness and again, attack on the mind and attack on rational thinking. Just to say in, in, in conclusion that like George Orwell once said, at a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I do believe that a lot of Catholics have been innocently and naively drawn into these eco-spiritual and new age blends that have their roots in a lot of psychology. I believe that just the simple act of handing out leaflets um, and from pulpit and seeking from the pulpit or maybe Catholic journals or any access that you have to the media or to friends or anywhere you can go can exert an influence. Having counselled um, a lot of people who are involved in yoga and seances and Reiki and reflexology, I can say that, you know, okay, you don't always succeed, but you can, you know, with some people get them out of these practices. It is our duty, I believe, to warn the innocent. It's one of the missionary tasks. You don't need to go to the Upper Zambezi in Africa to be a missionary. You can be a missionary right here talking about the New Age, believe me. That's what Redentionis Missio, that encyclical of Pope John Paul II said, you can be a missionary in your own country just warning the innocent. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Wanda Skrivonska. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit Cradio dot org dot au